0: Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Daniel Tellescloth, the Project Director for Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, or FAST, at the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. Daniel details the horrific refugee crisis created by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what FAST, its partners, and others are doing to safeguard refugees from being victims of human trafficking and to help them enter the financial system wherever they are resettled. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. It is a pleasure I often start that way, and it is certainly true in this case. It is a pleasure to have with me Daniel Taliskloff, who is the Project Director, Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, part of the United Nations University, the Center for Policy Research there, and part of a larger United Nations initiative. We've spoken before, but this is a chance to catch up on an important new topic. So Daniel, welcome.
1: Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me on your podcast.
0: So Daniel, where I want to go right away is I think the whole world is watching a little bit aghast at the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the fallout and destruction that's come out of that situation, particularly given the focus of F.A.S.T. and the focus of your career. Can you talk a little bit about some of the particular perils, the particular things that are happening with regard to human trafficking because of
1: the refugee crisis? Well, let me first thank you, Kieran, and comes for your very clear position addressing this conflict looking at the situation of refugees and, and how to bank displaced people in particular, I really appreciate this. Many years ago, I lived in Kiev. and I have a personal connection to that terrible situation that is unfolding. So back to your question, yes, we know that conflict is, along with poverty and climate change, a major driver for trafficking. So certainly, conflict is one of the main reasons why people are leaving their home countries. And leaving your homes makes you vulnerable to human trafficking. And not to forget that 70% of victims of trafficking are women and girls. And as we know, they are the most vulnerable for one form of trafficking, sexual exploitation, but also boys and men are concerned. I think in general, we, we say we know that conflict increases significantly forced labor, human trafficking, and child labor risks as a result of the situation and of the fact that people have to love their homes.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about particularly what we're seeing? I mean, it, it's interesting, you said uh, that 70% of the victims are uh, children and women. And in the Ukraine, of course, we've seen largely the uh, refugees are children and women. What are they encountering? What are the perils as they try to cross the border into Poland, for instance?
1: Well. Already before the invasion, Ukraine was an important source country for trafficked people in Europe. So, it is not a surprise that the traffickers are already at the border waiting to offer shelter, but ultimately for the purpose of subsequent exploitation. Let me be very clear, most people at the border are very generously offering legitimate support, but sadly, some of them are not. and. this is one reason we can talk about that a little bit later on, why we must inform refugees about offers that are too good to be true. So what we see now is an unprecedented number of people seeking shelter from armed violence in Ukraine and arriving in Europe every day. Some have already and more will probably move to countries like the US or Canada, predominantly it's now ending up in the moment in the countries bordering Ukraine, in particular in Poland. As of today, over 12 million people have been forced to leave their homes in Ukraine. The majority of them are internally displaced, but over 4 million have fled Ukraine, have crossed the border by now. Let us not forget that refugees from Ukraine, for us, include Ukrainian nationals, but also persons from third countries who lived in Ukraine before the war broke out. So I think that's the situation that we are facing now. Unprecedented, not the first time in Europe that we have seen waves of refugees coming, but the numbers are unprecedented. So you said
0: that a real mission that FAST and other international agencies that are working has is to prepare refugees to protect themselves a little bit about offers too good to be true. What do these offers look like? What is it that you tell refugees?
1: Well, let me first elaborate a little bit, the international community is doing in that context and what the recommendations are particular to the countries that are now providing shelter for refugees. And, and then I will have some comments on the role of the financial sector, so the target audience for fast in particular. So I think the things that are the most urgent, the first things to do is to provide housing, provide immediate assistance like food, clothing. But then also establish information centres, hotlines that can give clear official information on registration, on residents, on the rights refugees have. And that should be in a language that refugees understand. And in that context, we can then inform these people of the risks of human trafficking. It's important that the official information is disseminated broadly. So governments wouldn't rely on individuals to provide the information. Also, governments now must start to monitor for misleading information, especially on housing and on employment opportunities, to prevent trafficking. Now, specifically for the financial sector, as well as financial institutions, I mean, but also financial regulators, we believe that they have an important role to play in that context. Already in 2019, when we published the FAST blueprint, we confirmed that providing marginalized populations with access to financial services will reduce their vulnerabilities. So it's a preventative measure. Most refugees are very vulnerable and they may be at significant risk of human trafficking and exploitation. And those risks can be reduced by providing refugees with access to bank accounts, for example. Very commendable, the European Banking Authority came up just this week with a very good statement calling on financial institutions to offer what they call basic financial services. That can be you know, a bank account to start with to refugees from Ukraine. Another positive example, uh, we have worked with a group of banks in Liechtenstein, and they have offered free-of-cost bank accounts for refugees even for those that do not have full identification documents. So as soon as basically they agreed on a minimal standard of documentation that they need to have, but this is well beyond what you would ask for a client in normal circumstances. So we need to see more of these examples. We want to see more than just words, but we're also happy to support financial institutions as well as regulators in Europe to deal with that particular situation we are facing now.
0: Well, this has been such an important part of the work of FAST to victims of human trafficking. And we're talking about refugees who you're trying to avoid becoming victims of human trafficking, but helping them to establish a financial history. So I guess what you're describing is a kind of a transference or an expansion of the work that FAST has done in terms of making people able to participate in the global financial community by helping refugees to have accounts, to have connections for job and employment and all that
1: stuff. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for us, it is normal to have a bank account. For a refugee, it isn't. They come with a little bit of cash, usually, Um, some with a little bit more of cash. And then if it exceeds a certain threshold, if they come with a lot of cash, then we have to look at these things also differently. So this is not a, a one size fits all solution. But the large majority of these refugees come with very little financial support. And If we don't connect them to the financial system, they will find themselves in the hand of criminal organizations. As we all know, criminal organizations have more than enough cash and they're willing to offer financial support and other support to vulnerable populations so that they enter into debt bondage situations and and can be more easily be exploited.
0: You touched on this, that you would, we're gonna be able to talk a little bit about red flags. And I guess what we're talking about is red flags for people that are working at the borders, but also we're talking about red flags for institutions. I suppose that in trying to set up refugees with bank accounts, that there's still some potential of exploitation by other people co-opting those accounts or using them to get accounts and that sort of thing. So is there something you can say about being alert for that kind of abuse?
1: absolutely and you're, you're right you know on the one hand we must provide access to the financial service for these vulnerable populations but of course and this is an important preventive measure but of course we cannot avoid that some victims will be trafficked and their bank accounts will then be used to launder the proceeds of you know whatever it is sexual exploitation or labor exploitation now for a number of years already various organizations that includes the, the FATF The regional bodies, the Egmont Group and also the OSCE have provided quite useful compilations of red flag indicators in the context of trafficking. Also some FIUs and regulators, for example, in the US, in the Netherlands and in Germany, have also come up with indicators and compilations of indicators relating to these circumstances. Now, as usual, these indicators can be behavioural. They can be and mostly are transactional. And some of them are KYC related. Not all of them are unique for trafficking. Some of them are pretty broad and can be indicators for other forms of crime, too. But some of them are very specific. And let me give you an example of, of a, an indicator that I found to be pretty specific. And this relates to a situation that a client of a bank would share an address with seemingly several other seemingly unrelated individuals. Yes, this may be a group of students that are sharing a flat, but this may be also an indication that victims of trafficking are held at a specific place. So these are the kinds of specific indicators that we use now. We have started to organize roundtables with the financial industry in all the countries neighboring Ukraine. We have started in Latvia in February. We had an event with Hungary in March. And just a couple of days ago I was in Warsaw with my colleague Simon Tzaug, and we held a workshop with the financial industry on relevant indicators in Warsaw. And in that context, we're working very closely with the FIUs and law enforcement in the given countries because you know we want to share, we want to provide indicators that are very typical for the given country context. So these countries we have covered, we will move on, and we're very busy in organizing now additional workshops. And then we will also convene all the countries that have participated in these events to think about lessons learned and especially to learn to what degree these indicators have resulted in more and better SARS.
0: We just did a conference in Lithuania, and it's amazing to be in the Baltic region and see the kind of unity, the kind of concern about Ukraine. Obviously, the Baltic region has a real personal stake in this whole thing in in terms of their own futures and their independence. Where I'm going with this is that one of the unique things about the Ukrainian refugees right now is that obviously they are, and I think you alluded to this earlier, they may be headed for the US and Canada at some point, but right now they really want to be close to home. Everyone's hoping to return home. What kind of particular challenges does that present and how are we coping with that? Do we know in terms of international agencies and the mission to keep refugees from being exploited?
1: You're right. I was, as I mentioned, I was just in Warsaw, so you know, basically a few kilometres away from the border. And at the moment, while there are still refugees arriving from Ukraine, there's also a number of refugees going back already to Kiev, in particular, uh, because of the military situation around Kiev has changed. I hope it's not too early, but of course, I fully understand that people want to go back to their homes. So there's a lot of basically traffic in and out of Ukraine at the moment. I think with people going home, I'm not particularly concerned that this would increase risks or change the risks. I think you're right that most refugees do not plan to stay forever, or for long in the countries. I mean, they have come with, with very little, with a bag full of clothes. So I don't think that can be compared to the situation like of the refugees from Syria, where clearly there was no prospect for them to go back. And luckily, also, many of the refugees from Ukraine are, are highly qualified. So they can probably be more easily integrated into the formal labor market. The same, by the way, is true for the tens of thousands of people fleeing Russia because they don't want and they cannot stay any longer in that country. Again, this is not the first time we see this in Europe. I, I remember uh, stories my parents told me when I was younger and reflecting on the situation in Hungary in the 50s and in Czechoslovakia in the 60s, where a lot of Refugees came from those country, to Western countries, and they are now, you know, second generation or third generation. They are the dentists and the architects and the lawyers very often. So I'm I'm not particularly concerned about either way when people stay longer or when they go back to the home country. I mean, we have to be vigilant in any event and we have to continue to monitor the situation. But I think the main risk we're having now is really with vulnerable populations being at the border or behind the border and are being trapped into offers that are too good to be true. Tell me
0: a little bit about I'm almost kind of backtracking a little bit for people that are just coming into this call. If you want to say something broadly about the fast, initiative, its growth out of what the Lichtenstein initiative, if I'm confusing that you can set me straight on it, a little bit about that. And I think where I want to go is if you can talk about what its mission is going forward, what the future holds for FAST.
1: Yeah, with pleasure. And we use both terms FAST and Lichtenstein initiative in parallel. I mean, it's like the Paris Accord, which is not about the climate in Paris, but it bears the name of the city where where the program, where the treaty has been signed. So for that reason, we proudly continue to to carry the name of Liechtenstein because it was our first donor. But now we have ten donors. We have a team of our ten experts working here from New York. So the program has expanded massively. The financial inclusion work um, that I'm describing here in this podcast gets more and more important because I think, you know, while banks do a lot and, and increasingly do things that are good around detecting suspicious activity, the future will lie in the prevention of these crimes. We do help financial institutions to detect proceeds of trafficking and forced labor, but this intervention on financial inclusion will make a greater contribution to preventing these crimes. And then, of course, there's a lot of work we are doing on uh, using leverage that the financial sector had. And we're thinking here about investors and, and how they can Influence behavior of investees. I think that's also a huge potential here that we are going to use to achieve what we want to achieve, which is to end slavery and trafficking by 2030 in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals.
0: Some of the things that you do also involve the supply chains and getting financial institutions to adopt a particular code of behavior.
1: Well, that's correct. You know, financial institutions are very powerful because. The whole global economy is connected to finance. And I'll give you an example of the insurance sector. If we manage to convince all companies that provide coverage to the fishery industry, particularly to the vessels, if we can convince them to deny coverage uh, in the case the ship is lost, if there were instances of trafficking and slavery on these vessels, then we can make a huge contribution because the owner of the vessel will think twice whether he would risk to lose the coverage or whether he wouldn't better than pay a fair salary to the people working on the ship. Also the power of investment, you know, if the combined power of pension funds, uh, hedge funds, management companies, uh, asset owners, if they look into trafficking risks in their investee more specifically, and if they just started at the first point to raise this with the investees, say, look, this matters for us, and I, I want you to assess the risk that you're having in your supply chains, and um, this matters for me, and this is an important part of my investment decisions, this which will have a huge impact and will maybe on the long run lessen a little bit the burden on our colleagues in the compliance industry who you know, can only intervene basically when the crime has already happened which is necessary, and we shouldn't decrease that work. But I think we need to invest more in better assessing and mitigating risk further down the supply chain.
0: We're just about out of time. I did want to ask you if there's any concluding observations you want to make. I mean, Obviously, the work that you do is so important, the work that FAST does, the partners that are part of the, the whole initiative, this is such important work. And and it looks as though there was the traditional human trafficking issues, whatever that means, I don't know about traditional, but the human trafficking issues that have always been there. We've talked today about the refugee crisis. This refugee crisis looks like it's like not just going to be in Europe, it's going to be worse globally with climate change. I think you alluded to this in the beginning. Any final thoughts about, you know, how do we keep fighting the abuse of people who are refugees and and this rise of human trafficking.
1: It is a terrible situation in which we are in, and it's a tragic situation. But if there's one positive thing, it is the, the reaction of the financial sector to this crisis. So not only the examples that I brought you, I spoke to a banker in Warsaw and his bank has opened hundreds of thousands of accounts for refugees already. That's a big effort. But also what we see in terms of disengagement from Russia in that context. I know a large number of financial institutions decided to leave the country. That's probably not a decision that I have taken easily. And it's actually, they were not forced to do so. The sanction usually wouldn't go that far that they have to drop all business in a given country. So this goes beyond the legal requirements and is a response to a massive human rights violation. And I think this will make the difference in the future. We have to see trafficking in human beings as a human rights violation. And the human rights violation that can concern any of us. It's 40 million people in the world are concerned by that. And I'm afraid the number has, has increased during the pandemic. This can affect every family. And I think this makes it probably slightly different from other forms of crimes this close link to the human rights violation. And this creates obligations also for the financial industry. And, and I think the reaction we see now is a reaction that we need to see in any other crisis. This is not going to be the last conflict on this planet. This is not going to be the last refugee crisis. And I think it is good to see that the banks can do it. So there's no more excuse.
0: Daniel Taliskloff, Project Director, Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the work that you do, uh, the leadership to the financial community. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Daniel Taliskloff, Project Director of Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking at the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. I hope that you found what you heard compelling and that you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud, so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.